Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. I'm very glad today to be joined by Branko Marcetic on, among other things, uh, the war as it continues to rage in Ukraine. And um, we are a number of weeks into a supposed summer offensive, the evidence for which is not clear. What is clear is that war fever has gripped at least the elites uh, of the transatlantic sphere, both here in the UK uh, and in the, in the United States, um, where Branko uh, is a journalist with the publication Jacobin. Uh, elites have gone all in on the war and have disdained uh, any opinion which seeks to call for uh, peace or a negotiated settlement. Branko, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, let me ask about um, Biden's visit to the to the UK and perhaps the relationship between the United States and the UK in this war. Um, obviously, Western actors have some disagreements, um, but it looks like uh, my country and the country on which you most frequently report are in um, lockstep. Is that still how you understand the... What, what in the UK is called the uh, uh, the special relationship? Yeah, I mean, more or less, uh, uh, you know, there's been reporting from the start of the war that, you know, NATO is kind of carved up into, into two broad blocks. Um, and there's one block that's kind of led by France and Germany, which is more inclined towards uh, negotiations, you know, or any sort of peace talks. Uh, and, and really just bringing the war to a close. And the UK and the United States have been at the head of a, a different block, usually Poland's in that in the mix there too, uh, who are more inclined to um, uh, uh, you know, military victory or victory on the battlefield uh, and who were less inclined towards uh, a possible peace early on in the war. Um, if it meant that Russia was or, or Putin was going to get uh, less harshly punished, uh, and so so wanted to use the war as, as a way to kind of um, send a message to other would-be aggressors. Um, so I think in that sense, yeah, the UK and the US have been pretty well aligned throughout this war. I, I wouldn't quite say lockstep only because there's been a few minor but 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 cracks. Nevertheless, um, I think the most recent example of this was um, the US decision to send cluster munitions to mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, which is an absolutely god-awful decision. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, the UK, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, didn't say, didn't condemn it or anything, but but basically, you know, uh, as politely as one possibly can, uh, said that, they, you know, this was not saying that the UK was going to join in, a, you know, sort of a, a, a very subtle rebuke of, of the US position. Um, but I mean, actually, that to be honest, I think in the grand scheme of things, uh, that's kind of an outlier because I feel like the UK has actually been, in this case, more um, aggressive than even than even Biden. You know, the UK under, under uh, Boris Johnson. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's been a few differences here and there, but you could say that those two, you know, your country and 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 the United States are still very very broadly aligned when it comes to to policy on this war. Yeah, it's interesting. From from our perspective, it seems like the war is an opportunity, apart from anything else, for British elites to reintegrate with the European Union, which, of course, um, there has been 
uh, ill will um, over the last few years since the, the Brexit vote. So it looks like Britain really reintegrating itself with Europe and thereby with the United States. Can I ask about the, the mood around the war in the United States, though, because um, I read a report on the Institute for Responsible Statecraft uh, claiming that um, there may be some kind of shadow talks between um, kind of former U.S. government officials and figures inside Russia, and that this might um, sort of foreshadow potential uh, more serious talks towards a negotiated settlement. But what's the wider political culture in the United States? Is anyone in the media, in high politics, if I can call it that, seriously discussing peace? Or is it still no onward till total and final victory you know, including the the reclaiming of places like uh, Crimea. It's interesting. Uh, the answer to that is a is a really complicated one because um, I think the the mood on the war uh, uh, really differs from where you're standing. I mean, I have to say, the kinds of things that I see on social media, you know, uh, Twitter more, more than anything else. Uh, as well as uh, mainstream press, you know, the kind of ultra hawkish, uh, almost kind of adoption of Ukrainian nationalism um, by people, you know, living thousands of miles away, all this kind of stuff, the the kind of stuff that I think um, uh, people think about when they when they think of US discourse in the war, that really, uh, I've not found that in, in daily life, talking to people, Uh, people on the whole, I think, you know, they're, they're, appalled by the war and they feel very uh sympathetic to ukraine obviously um and i think they they would want the war to stop one way or another um but by and large i haven't found that that you know kind of people outside of the political sphere uh people who aren't intellectuals who aren't you know um uh, super high news consumers uh are kind of obsessed with the war and obsessed with kind of victory, military victory above anything else. Um, that to me is really a, a kind of uh, uh, intellectual and, and, and Washington obsession. Mm. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, but in terms of, you know, what, what the move of, uh, around the war is in, in those circles, I mean, uh, obviously it's still very hawkish. Um, you know, you'll still find people talking about the need to kind of, you know, uh, uh, support Ukraine as long as it takes, you know, Ukraine will retake Crimea and the Donbass and so on and so forth, that military victory is the only acceptable solution and so on. Um, But there has been since, I would say, you know, roughly December or so, there's been more uh, and more kind of um, uh, 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 voices in the the mainstream press and and even um, in, in, you know, out out of the United States government uh, talking about the need to to to, to negotiate to, to you know try and end this without it spiraling into some kind of disaster. Um, I think there's a, a number of reasons for this. I think one was um, the kind of way that Putin's nuclear uh, illusions in whatever it was October last year kind of spooked people. Um, I think part of it is there's a rising resignation that that this war is not going to end in, in military victory necessarily for anyone uh, but certainly not ukraine and this is just going to be a really bloody horrible stalemate mm. um and i think the other 
you know, I, I, I wish, you know, anti-war sentiment was the big uh, uh, thing here, people kind of waking up and coming to their senses. But unfortunately, I think a, a big part of it is also that because the war has become this uh, stalemate, it's been a massive drain on uh, US and NATO resources. You know, weapon stockpiles have been, um, you know, people have been warning for months that they're being depleted at an unsustainable rate. The, the US and other NATO allies have had to go you know, scour the world for old weapon stores so they can kind of maintain uh, their stocks while also uh, uh, supplying Ukraine. And, and I mean, even this, this cost of munitions decision, Biden specifically pointed to um, a shortage of ammunition um, for Ukrainian forces to, to uh, uh, justify. And, and the thing there is, you know, it's, it's not just that that's bad for Ukraine's war effort, but for the United States, whose who's real, um, you know, or rather the US leadership, whose who's real uh, focus is on, on a war with China, they're worried that if anything happens with Taiwan, they will not have the weapons that they need to, to either send to Taiwan or um, enter the conflict themselves. And so I think for all those reasons, there has been um, a, a, it's a slow and still very, uh, 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 a, a slow turn that's, that's not been enough uh, uh, towards peace, but it, but it has been happening. Um, you know, uh, and the last thing I'll say is in terms of US leadership, I haven't really seen that much, you know, Anthony Blinken just, what, um, a few weeks back came out and said, you know, basically, a ceasefire is rewarding the aggressor and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's there's several different layers going on here. I think at the very top, there still is not really um, an appetite uh, for peace among among US leadership. But but you know, it, it it you get more and more inclined towards negotiations and ceasefire. The 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 lower you go down, the sort of you know proverbial totem pole. Sure, I think that's an important distinction you make. I mean, I remember even at you know the height of the kind of war fever if it could be described described that way you know in the weeks following immediately following russia's invasion of ukraine even when there was this extremely concerted attempt to you know run ukrainian flags up um you know flagpoles in small council districts in the uk and so on there was no real popular reflection of this there weren't people out in the streets marching supporting the war as there might have been you know during the first world war or other conflicts um you know supporting britain's side and so on there was obviously a lot of sympathy um, for the people of Ukraine, whose country had been invaded and abhorrence of the war, but not any kind of real popular mobilization. And now I feel I think much wider layers of society might be more receptive to the attitude that this has to end in a, in a negotiated uh, settlement. Um, so I think that's a good point. Let me just ask, though, about that other aspects of that kind of elite culture in the United States. I mean, it's my impression across the pond, and I don't watch um, American news outfits on a, you know, every day or every week. Um, But I get the impression that the most pro-war arguments are coming from those carriers like CNN on the more kind of uh, partisan liberal wing of the media sphere. I mean, is that is that a correct... I mean, I get the sense, by the way, that across the Democratic and Republican parties, most media outlets and most politicians are broadly singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, but is it fair to say that the liberal wing of the American elite seems to be the more hawkish in this period? I mean, sadly, that that is true. 
Um, and, and I think a lot of that is to do with the way that the war has been sold to people here. Uh, it's being sold as, as a World War II style conflict. This is kind of, this is a good war. Uh, the US is supporting a country that's fighting for its sovereignty uh, against a, a larger aggressive neighbor. Um, that, that neighbor, by the way, happens to be uh, Russia or Vladimir Putin's Russia, the same one that, you know, a lot of people on the liberal side have been uh, convinced, mm. uh, put Donald Trump in office. Um, and, and beyond that is kind of responsible for nearly every terrible thing um, in both the United States and, and the world. I mean, a lot of people have made this argument that, that you know, Putin is kind of, Putin's Russia is kind of the, the center, the fountainhead of um, global conservatism or even fascism, uh, that, that, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of responsible for, it's the center of kind of uh, LGBTQ hatred. And obviously, you know, Putin's Russia is a very socially conservative country, but um, these are, very overstated claims. However, it's very persuasive to a lot of people, um, and it makes them more inclined to to see this as kind of a a, a just uh, cause that that they should be uh, supporting. Because you know, if if if, if you're fighting against the next Hitler, um, you know, you it's it's negotiations are sort of futile. It's, it has to end in some sort of uh, military defeat. Um, so I think I think that's a, a big part of the reason why people are so gung ho on the liberal side, whereas there hasn't been quite the same um, a level of propaganda aimed at the right to, to uh, prime ordinary conservative voters to 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 be for a war. But you know, I mean, this is the interesting thing about the United States: uh, <laughs> the partisan polarization um, that has kind of come to infect every part of of, of, of public discourse um, in the United States. Uh, it means that, yes, well, the Democrats and, and, and liberals are more gung-ho in this particular conflict, uh, mm. and while conservatives are less so. Although, don't get me wrong, I mean, polling shows that that uh, Republicans are also, you know, very much in favor of, of you know, arming Ukraine, and um, there's a lot of Republicans against negotiations. So don't, you know, I don't want to overstate things. But um, the one that, 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 the conflict that conservatives and Republicans uh, are kind of very much into is, um, is, is against China. And that's one that, that ordinary rank and file liberals are not uh, quite as, as passionate about. So you sort of have uh, the, the partisan polarization um, is kind of split down the middle, uh, uh, you know, which, which party wants war with which massive uh, nuclear power. Um, and then I think you have a, a, a broad, um, you know, I don't know, forty percent of so of the country uh, who are independents who maybe they support conflict with Russia and China, maybe they support one, maybe they support neither. Um, but that that one tends to be a little more kind of um, more of a wild card. I mean, I don't know um, how far back your memory goes with American politics, but is this something which has changed over time? I remember, um, I still remember when. I first became aware of politics in the aftermath of 9-11, um, there was a much clearer sense, because, of course, it focused around George W. Bush and the Iraq War, um, that the left were people who were generally anti-war and the right were, you know, dominated in those days by a, the neoconservative kind of tendency in the Republican Party. The right were much more identifiably the pro-war camp in politics. Is this change? 
is it a short run thing or is this uh, a longer run and deeper and more meaningful change? Can we expect, as you know, competition between China and the United States continues to build, as perhaps we leave behind the peak of the unipolar moment where the United States went largely without significant challenge, as we leave those days behind, can we expect sort of American liberal imperialism to become the, the, the kind of prominent, to remain the prominent pro-war camp? I mean, in terms of uh, the, the legacy of you know, 9-11, the Iraq war and Afghanistan and, and everything you know, that, that followed those terrorist attacks, I, I think uh, that did create a war weariness within the public as a whole. Uh, mm. the American public. I think, uh, I mean, even, you know, you can look at the way some of the, you know, let's say worst foreign policy decisions under both uh, uh, Biden and, and Obama uh, and Trump, um, there's been a general kind of uh, need to avoid putting boots in the ground. Um, mm. And that I think is a, a, um, a direct response uh to to what the mood of the public has been um since bush's wars um you know i mean it still hasn't prevented a bunch of really really dumb wars being launched including you know the the, the libyan adventure which plunged that country into chaos but it does mean that that um american leaders are less inclined to kind of directly entangle uh the united states and even biden has as you know even if we think he's failing. Um, his goal throughout this uh, war in Ukraine has been to keep the United States out of it, at least getting directly entangled in it. Um, uh, so, you know, that's that's uh, one thing. But, I mean, in terms of the protest movement uh, against the Iraq war and, and everything, you know, all, all the, the war on terror policies, uh, you know, I think a lot of those people were politicized. Um, I think for young people, it was a, it was a radicalizing event. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it, it has left them with anti-war sentiments. But at the same time, you know, I, I think a lot of that, I think in hindsight, we can we can see that it may have been driven more by partisan sentiment than anything else. People didn't like Bush. Um, they wanted him gone. Um, then when Obama came in and continued uh, the US presence in Iraq, continued Afghanistan, actually put more troops in Afghanistan um though and and ramped up drone strikes uh you know there was not nearly the same energy in the street uh at all and in fact actually polling showed that that people changed their minds you know democratic voters changed their minds about uh things like drone strikes because of the fact that now their standard bearer was supporting it so um uh yeah i i it's 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 a complicated question. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say, uh, I think something that really did uh, help scramble this even further is, is uh, Trump's election, because Trump, even though he was a very aggressive president on foreign policy and, and actually deserves a lot of the blame for uh, what we're seeing now. I mean, he really laid the mm. seeds of this uh, war in Ukraine and then, you know, happened to leave office before, before he had to deal with it. Um, but uh uh he did uh run on and voice a kind of anti-interventionist sentiment and it's something that he's leaned into more i think the republican party realizes now that a lot of voters particularly voters you know who are independents and and 
some of these uh, uh, Trump voting parts of the country, but also some of these swing states uh, that have become so pivotal uh, uh, since 2016 that that they're not they don't have the appetite for war. That 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 people are more uh, inclined to to want to see policies that that lift up themselves and their communities and and, and see U.S. wealth being being you know spread across the United States rather than being sent to to foreign countries. I think there is a and you know for people not to not to come home in body bags or with missing limbs and so on and so forth. I think uh, there is a recognition that that that, that exists. And it doesn't it doesn't always cut easily on uh, on party lines. So I think um, there, there has been a real shift. Um, you know whether that's that shift has really uh, happened among among purely liberals. It's, you know again it's an open question whether they that how how much that original anti-war feeling was was uh, you know driven by just opposition to Bush. Let me ask one final question on China because there's a feeling that Russia, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, leading on to this kind of um, proxy conflict with the United States is funneling weapons and strategic support and logistical support and so on into Ukraine, that through this, the United States and its Western allies want to deal with Russia and consolidate US influence in Europe as part of a pivot towards Asia. I mean, it's very it's very hard to get a sense because the idea of a conflict between the United States and China sounds so catastrophic and so dangerous that that in itself lends the whole thing an air of unreality. How much more real is the idea of a confrontation between the United States and China become in the last few years? Because again, it seems for me, from a distance from the United States, that the language has become much harder uh, towards China in the last few years. And of course, the UK is also involved in the military buildup in the so-called uh, AUKUS alliance uh, with Australia, United States, um, you know, a, a, a potentially a, a, a submarine, um, nuclear submarine buildup in in the, the region. How real is that conflict? I think for a lot of people, it, it seems utterly remote and almost preposterous that a conflict of that, that kind could take place. Is that a misleading feeling? Well, people are right that it is a preposterous idea, and yeah, it is. It is real, uh, and it's getting realer, you know, every every month, every year. I mean, just to to give you one example, when Trump came into office, in fact, before he was even inaugurated, um, uh, so you know, in, in late twenty sixteen, after the election, he uh, phoned uh, the the president of Taiwan, and this was. At the time, viewed as a very uh, dangerous and reckless thing to do, it was it was you know viewed as one of the kind of first breakings of norms that he did upon being president elect. You know, kind of um, watering or watering down or, or weakening the, the 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 one China policy or appearing to, um, and, and you know people said this is going to to provoke a very bad Chinese reaction. You know, Trump is already so dangerous, so on and so forth. A lot of a lot of mainstream outlets, a lot of a lot of liberal outlets. Um, you know, fast forward to, to the Biden administration, and we've gone well beyond that. Uh, I mean, not just the Speaker of the House visiting Taiwan, but there's been several, uh, you know, I think at least three congressional delegations that visit Taiwan. Uh, meanwhile, weapons are being piled up in, into the country. Biden has repeatedly said things along the lines of, you know, the, the, taking strategic ambiguity off the table and saying outright, yes, we will fight a war over Taiwan. 
um, generally doing all sorts of things that were prior to 2016 considered uh, unthinkable and, and, and dangerously destabilizing for the US-China relationship. Um, meanwhile, you've got US uh, uh, military officials, you know, uh, not, not necessarily the, the top ranking ones, but, you know, fairly prominent people saying things like China's going to, you know, invade by 2027. We have to be ready to fight a war with China by 2024, so on and so forth. Um, the, the entire political spectrum has sort of been wrenched over to where Trump was, you know, so Biden's kind of gone beyond Trump in many ways in terms of his hostility to China. Um, meanwhile, you know, you had someone like John Fetterman. John Fetterman is this kind of uh, Bernie Sanders style Democrat in Pennsylvania um, who, who won this uh, uh, Senate seat, um, kind of running on this left wing or leftish economic populist message. Uh, when he was asked in a debate, um, uh, what the biggest threat to the United States was, he said China. You know, this is a, mm. supposed to be a progressive <laughs> aligned with, with, with Bernie Sanders. So the entire political spectrum has, has been turned into, you know, to be taken seriously, you have to kind of show that you're going to be bigger and tougher in China than, than the next guy. Um, and that's a very, coupled with all the, you know, the media propaganda and, and the way that people, that the, that the press and the kind of intellectual class are just accepting kind of um, a slide towards a more hostile relationship and, and towards the US uh, government kind of uh, crossing lines that wouldn't have otherwise. It's, it's all very dangerous, um, you know, and I think beyond whether there's a, there's a real intention uh, to, to, to fight a war, which there definitely is among some people, don't, you know, I would not uh, under, under count that. But beyond even that, I mean, the potential for something unexpected or, or some sort of misunderstanding or, or, you know, for things just to kind of get out of control in the, in the process of, of events unfolding is, is very high. And that's the thing that could really, I think, lead to some sort of conflict that we, that, and that we have to, to worry about, you know. And I mean, I think um, there's, there's been some pushback to this in Europe, which has been good, you know, Macron, he got savage for it in the U.S. press. I think some of the European press too. But but Macron basically, you know, saying again as politely as one can as a U.S. Uh, ally that that France should not be going along with U.S. policy towards China. That more of that has to happen. I think I think the kind of U.S. push or the U.S. elite push for war with China. I think uh, it would be good to to isolate that on the world stage as much as possible to to show people that that you know this is not something that. That, that the, uh, the the people of the world actually want, but um, I don't know. We'll see if that happens. Just because you mentioned Fetterman, I mean, I did say finally, but this is my very last question. Um, right. We've talked about liberals and conservatives and their convergence largely around um, these foreign policy objectives. Is there any possibility of a third, you know, a kind of socialist challenge that um is willing to resist american foreign policy in particular because it seems like um the kind of aoc and, and bernie sanders and that project to create a viable left inside the democratic party that on these questions there's a folding really there's not really an attempt to provide an alternative from a kind of radical left position 
Yeah, I mean that's that's completely true. I mean, listen, I I I respect Bernie Sanders a great deal. I've written a lot about him um, when he was running his times as mayor and and all this stuff. I think he's an incredibly impressive politician and individual, very inspiring. But I have been very disappointed by his unwillingness to kind of go on the limb and 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 you know criticize some of this stuff, or even just to you know put forward some sort of alternative, even even just saying hey, peace and diplomacy are good. And to me, that's a, it's a reflection of just how extreme political discourse and, and foreign policy has become in the US since the war, where we've mm. really kind of gone back into this kind of Bush era speak, except now I hear it often from, sadly, from, from uh, liberals, uh, uh, Democrats, as well as conservatives. So, I mean, you know, uh, at the moment, the the most high profile alternative, at least when it comes to foreign policy, uh, uh, to, to what Biden's pushing is, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, but, you know, RFK Jr. is not particularly good on domestic policy um, and, you know, pairs what I think is a, a fairly sensible and reasonable stance on the Ukraine war and foreign policy with a batch of poison pills uh, on, on a, whole ho- he's, uh, a whole host of other things, you know, vaccines being the kind of most uh, uh, high profile thing. And so that's, you know, not particularly helpful for trying to, I think, persuade people to, to you know, see uh, an alternative, less aggressive US foreign policy as a, as a viable and, and, and good thing, if it's coming from a messenger like that. And beyond that, you know, you've got uh, Marion Williamson, who uh, I think is, is good on domestic policy, but um, uh, her foreign policy does not, at least from what I've seen, differ that much from, from what's coming out of Biden. Um, certainly not when it comes to, to, to you know, the, the Ukraine war. Um, and then you also have uh, Cornell West, who mm-hmm. I think is, is good on both, on both domestic and foreign policy, but he's running in the Green Party. Um, you know, there was a there was a debate about whether he should have um, run as a Democrat. I I personally think he should have if if he wanted to actually you know try and shift uh, or push Biden in some way. Uh, but he's running in the Green Party. Um, you know, I, historically, I, I I can't really remember the Green Party races unfortunately uh, shifting uh, the political goals, goalposts in the United States uh, very often. But who knows? Uh, I'd love to be to be wrong. I guess the answer to your question is no. There's not. There's not that much um, uh, going on in terms of uh, providing an alternative. I mean, actually, the, the sad thing is that the fact that there isn't really much of that happening, it, it gives it opens a door for you know uh, cranks and reactionaries to kind of fill the gap and 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 uh, siphon off some of that um, anti-war uh, uh, sentimental energy, which I think is uh, is another kind of uh, you know slow slow moving disaster okay branco um thanks very much uh for your thoughts and uh as ever at conta uh, as these issues develop as the war continues as uh, there's increasingly hawkish talk including from the uk towards china we'll be uh covering all of that branco thanks very much for coming on hey thanks for having me want more like this Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. 
We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.com.